a show of hands, how many of you here would consider yourself as living away from home? Fair amount of you, right? Maybe you consider home to be wherever you grew up or where your family lives. Maybe that's somewhere else in Ontario or Canada or somewhere else in the world, another country. Maybe you hope to return home one day. Or you're open to making your home elsewhere. Or maybe you feel that this is home, but that it wasn't always that way. I felt like Ottawa is my home city for many years now, but when I first moved here 18 years ago, it didn't feel like home at all. Many things felt foreign, from eating beaver tails to freezing rain... (laughs) Saying, A. (laughs) But where is home for you? Are you living away from it? And if you are, what does it look like to make your home away from home? That can involve any number of things. It can involve adjusting to a number of differences between home and here. It might mean that you haven't settled down yet. You've purposely, you haven't become attached, or that you're struggling to fit in here because it's not quite home yet. I'd like to suggest today that everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ should have raised their hand a moment ago. It's kind of a trick question because you are away from home. You're away from home. Every Christian is living away from their true home by nature. Really, we are born away from home. We are foreign-born nationals of a holy nation. But what does that mean for us now? What, how should that impact our day-to-day lives? What does it look like for us to be living home away from home? Well, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter 2, and we'll see what it tells us there. 1 Peter 2. We've been journeying through the book of 1 Peter together the last few months, and right at the beginning, if you've been with us, right at the beginning of the book, Peter called the believers that he was writing to elect exiles. Exiles, implying that we are living somewhere away from where we belong. Now he's going to return to this picture in chapter 2, and he's going to expand on it, starting to explain what it means to be an exile. So what does it mean that we are an exile now? Let's pray before we dive in here that we'd be able to understand and apply what we see and hear today. Heavenly Father, we ask you as we come to your word that you would work on our hearts that every person who has come here would be ready and willing to hear from you. That your spirit would be moving to convict and to change hearts. That we would be encouraged by today, that we would grow in our Christ-likeness, and that we would go from here a little more in love with you than we were before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In 1 Peter 2.11, which is where we'll start today, Peter basically transitions to a whole new section of his book. However, what he says is built entirely on the foundation of what has come before. And what has come before is that a massively life-transforming message has been delivered to us. And namely, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. That even though we once lived in darkness, the darkness of sin and death and judgment, Christ came to us, and he came to us shining his light on us, shedding his blood for us. And just when he died and things looked the most hopeless, he rose from the dead in glory. And now we've seen that Jesus has been revealed as the cornerstone, the the heart, the foundation of God's eternal plan. This message, this is the living word, which gives us a living hope, and it builds us upon the living stone. We are called to come to Christ and find ourselves totally changed, like we saw last week in verse 9. But you, now you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if that is not your reality or your experience yet, it can be Today, you might still be stumbling over Jesus, not one of his people, as it says, without his mercy. And while I would warn you that you are in dire straits without that, I'd also say there's amazing hope. There's amazing hope because of this, because Jesus shed his blood, took your death, and offers you his life in his Mercy. So now you can actually come to him and you can find him ready to receive you as his own. If you talk with me later or you talk with the person who brought you, we can help you with that, to find Jesus, to come to Jesus. And if you have already done this, know that you haven't stopped needing Jesus' mercy. Every day of our lives. It is still shaping us. It's still making us holy. It's still preparing us to to serve the King of Kings more and more. And so it's it's the same good news of Jesus that undergirds everything Peter says in the coming pages. But his focus is going to shift a bit. He's going to shift from the, the church community to the broader community that surrounds us, outside of our walls. I subtitled this series as Holy People in a Hostile Place. And we definitely are going to see that here. If verse 9 and 10 describe who we are as God's new holy people, verse 11 and 12 describe what it's like for us to live in a fairly hostile place. So without further ado, let's read in verse 11. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. To stop there, Peter starts right out by calling believers beloved, identifying his readers as both loved by God and apparently as loved by him as well. They're his beloved. So he establishes his affection for them before telling them what to do. And then he says, I urge you, which is in Greek, it's phrased very much as a command. So this isn't a strong suggestion. This is authoritative instruction for Christians. We all know people who hold authority over us and yet do not care for us in a personal way. Politicians or lawmakers, police officers, maybe a, a distant boss or a teacher you have. We also have many people who love us and yet who have no authority to tell us what to do, right? Like our many close friends or maybe a brother or sister or our children or grandchildren. And then there are those who have both affection for us and authority over us, such as our parents when we still live with them, or a good teacher, or a, a spiritual leader. But the ultimate example of that of, is, of course, God, right? who, whose, whose love for us never runs out and whose authority over us never expires. If you are a believer, hear God's word here. You are both deeply loved and you're deeply urged to act. But before Peter gives us the actual command, he reminds us of who, who else we are right now. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. Other versions say aliens, strangers, pilgrims, or foreigners. If sojourner isn't a word that you use every day, it simply means temporary resident. Right? Temporary resident. Someone from somewhere else who is just passing through. And an exile refers to someone who is forced to live away from their home, against their will. So Peter tells us that we should see ourselves as these. We should see ourselves as sojourners and exiles. So as temporary residents, as where we live now, who are longing for our real home. We wish we were there. Billy Graham once said, my home is in heaven. I'm just traveling through this world. And of course, you probably know. He got home this week. But the language that Peter uses here echoes what Abraham himself, or Abraham called himself in Genesis 23, a sojourner and a foreigner. And Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham and others acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. As sojourners... We stand in the line of Abraham and many other men and women of faith in admitting that we don't belong here, but that we long for a homeland that's coming. But consider what this picture means. Okay, think of the last time that you traveled out of country. And if you've never been outside Canada, you'll have to use your imagination. 
Or just imagine someone from somewhere else in the world visiting here in Canada. But whenever you stay in a, in a foreign place as a visitor or a tourist, you act differently than the locals. Right? You don't usually dress the same or talk the same or go about the same activities. You don't participate in the same customs and practices of the place that you're visiting. Nor do you have the same privileges and responsibilities of people who live there. If you're only going to be there temporarily, you wouldn't do anything permanent like buy a house, open a bank account, or enroll your kids in school. Your, your foreignness is evident. It's observable. You'd stick out. Right? You wouldn't know all the cultural ins and outs, or do's and don'ts, or the local lingo. So you might even get asked, you're not from around these parts, are you? There are certain things that citizens and residents do that visitors simply don't do. We are really outsiders, in a sense. And in our world, people who are seen as outsiders often aren't treated the best. Now, here in Ottawa, we're a tourist city. We generally appreciate tourism and the the boon that it is to our local economy. But we can be equally annoyed at tourists and their antics, can't we? (laughs) Like the the car with out-of-province plates going about 20 kilometers an hour down the canal. (laughs) Or you're skating on the canal and the people always stopping right in your path to take selfies. (laughs) Those are more lighthearted examples because there's really a lot of serious discrimination against outsiders globally. Right? We don't, as, P, as humans, we don't necessarily trust people who look and talk and think differently than us. And so when people don't belong, when they don't belong, they can be treated with disdain or animosity, even hostility. But here's the interesting thing about what Peter says about the hostility we'll face as sojourners. He says that one of our main sources of hostility doesn't come from the outside, but from the inside. Look again at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Here's what I think we must learn from Peter here. That as God's people... Living away from home requires avoiding passions that are opposed to us. Living away from home requires avoiding passions that are opposed to us. Again, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. If we are to truly live as God's people here, we must avoid passions Opposed to us. And the word Peter uses is abstain, which means to refrain deliberately and often with self-denial. It means to go without. To avoid altogether, if at all possible. And given the warfare imagery that Peter uses later in that same verse, we might think that our first response to passions of the flesh should be to fight against them. But the command given isn't to fight back or to resist sin, even if we should. And we should. The command here is to abstain. 
to avoid completely, to, to keep away from sin. For those of you who know me, you know that I'm on a lifelong quest to abstain from eating bananas. <laughs> bananas repulse me for whatever reason, and so I intentionally will not go near them. <laughs> but there's a big difference between abstaining from something you don't like in the first place and abstaining from things you're liable to enjoy. Like Peter says, passions. Like we established, abstaining is, is really something that sojourners and exiles would have been used to. There were all kinds of cultural practices that visitors abstained from taking part in. Whether by lack of rights or by choice, their standard of life, their standard of values was different. For early Christians, you may think of them not participating in the rampant idol worship of the day. Or refusing to engage in the sexual norms of the day. Now seeing abstinence as a good thing wasn't exclusive to Christianity, of course. The Greek moral philosophers tended to see self-control from carnal passions as a virtue. So really what Peter was asking here, he, was, he wanted people to live in a way that even many of their neighbors would see as good. They would see the positive side of it. But what are the, the passions of the flesh that we're supposed to avoid? They've also been called sinful or evil desires or fleshly lusts. Passions definitely has to do with desires. And flesh refers to our old nature. So this is referring to any sinful desires that people naturally feel. Any natural human tendency towards sin is to be abstained from and avoided. The ones that might come quickly to your mind when you think of fleshly sins would be sexual immorality of all kinds, any form of sexual activity outside of marriage, which these days would, of course, include pornography, or sins of consumption, gluttony, drunkenness, substance abuse, those types of things, sins of the body. But... What about sinful, other sinful desires we have? Like greed, or envy, or selfish ambition. It's worth us thinking about, what would it mean to purposely avoid these desires today? What would it mean for you to abstain from the passions of the flesh? What does total abstinence from porn look like for you? You put up safeguards? What, is, what does avoiding the sins of gluttony or drunkenness look like in your life? What would it involve to avoid greed? And to, keep, to keep away from covetousness. Or envy. Maybe you've got to stop working overtime hours and start giving more of your money away. Maybe you've got to stop window shopping ads and malls and Amazon all the time. All you boyfriends, girlfriends, and now fiancés out there messing around sexually. 
You might need to memorize this verse, (laughs) but you definitely need to learn abstinence. It's a calling for Christians. How should we avoid lust? Refuse to, to watch certain shows or read certain books? To start. You might think, well, I can, I can watch this and I'll just turn my head or I'll cover my eyes when I need to. But I think Peter would shake his head. <laughs> you don't understand abstaining, do you? What would it look like? The major problem with this way of thinking is, is how dangerous these passions actually are. Peter is very clear to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So these passions are fighting for your soul. They want you, and they will destroy you if they get the chance. Imagine if a, if a big war came to our land in Canada, and... And with enemy soldiers roaming our streets. Okay, we're talking violent, merciless enemies. Death to Canadians type of people. Okay, imagine if I said, look out the window, those guys look fun. They probably know how to have a good time. So I go out and I venture outside and invite them into my house for dinner. What would you think? You're crazy, right? What a a foolish, dangerous thing to do. I mean, maybe I'd have a little bit of fun, but, but these people are sworn to kill me. What if I respond, oh, don't worry. If they take a shot at me, I'll just duck. The best way to avoid being killed isn't to duck. It's to not invite them in in the first place. In this world, we basically already live in enemy-occupied territory. And once we're saved, though the ground of our hearts becomes God's territory, his alone. But even inside ourselves, there are forces fighting to take back ground. And if we don't avoid them, they will do violence to our relationship with God. You might think, well, these these passions don't seem like they could be that dangerous. But I could point to countless lives that have been decimated by these sins. And And I'd add that if Jesus had to die to pay for them, they're not safe at all. Tom Schreiner warns, he says, Those who have the Spirit are not exempt from fleshly desires. Obviously, the desires of the flesh that emerge in believers are quite strong if they are described in terms of warfare, as an enemy that attempts to conquer believers. Such desires must be resisted and conquered, and the image used implies that this is no easy matter. The Christian life is certainly not depicted as passive, in which believers simply let go and let God. This is absolutely true, but also, 
our doing this wouldn't stand a chance if God hadn't already done. We have to remember that as we go to war here, or as we work hard to circumvent the war, that Jesus already waged the war against sin for us. And won. On the cross, Jesus fought the battle to end all battles, taking our sin on himself. And as he died, the power of sin over us died with him. And when he rose, sin didn't. So even now, as we seek to abstain from the enemy of our our sinful nature and our fleshly desires, we fight against an already defeated enemy. Sin has been subdued forever. And therefore, no matter how defeated we may feel sometimes, there is hope for us to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I'd encourage you, just to put this into practice, to identify a couple sins today that you have invited into your life. And then to identify what it means for you to avoid or abstain from those passions. In verse 12, Peter continues talking about the hostility we will face as Sojourners and exiles, and this time the opposition does come from outside. Look with me. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So while passions wage war against our souls, it says other people can also speak against us. These are both hostile forces. However, notice a major difference between these two verses. We must abstain from passions, but we are distinctly not told to abstain from people. In fact, we're told to stay among them. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, honorable. So, even if and when people do oppose us, we are actually to respond in a very different way than the last point. As God's people, living away from home means remaining honorable among people who may oppose us. Living away from home means remaining honorable among people who may oppose us. Peter says, keep your Conduct, In other words, your behavior, your actions, your lifestyle. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Back in chapter 1, Peter told us to be holy in all your conduct. Same word. Believers have this new life in Christ, and our behavior should come to reflect that new life. The NIV says here to live such good lives among the pagans. This is really a a simple order to be good, to behave excellently, to be careful how we live, But but to be careful especially among the Gentiles. Gentiles usually meant anyone non-Jewish. But here, Peter uses it to refer to all unbelievers. 
And this makes sense, right? That considering he just called all believers, Gentiles included, God's holy nation. The church has now been grafted in. We are God's chosen people now, which makes us more than just Gentile Canadians. There is now a, a distinction drawn between us and the world around us. They are Gentiles, and we are now something else, something new. But we're still living among Gentiles every day. Right? You, your neighbors are Gentiles. It's not an insult. Okay? This is just a, a term. You go to, to work with Gentiles. You go to school with Gentiles. You may live with Gentiles. And so as we live among Gentiles, we need to keep the way we live, Peter says, honorable. Honorable. What does that look like, we wonder? Well, there are a few possibilities, which, in fact, all may be correct. (laughs) Honorable conduct here could refer to the holy conduct that Peter's already talked about. Any godly behavior that reflects God on earth, including abstaining from sinful passions. Honorable conduct could well refer to all kinds of good deeds. We see that in verse 12, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or honorable conduct could refer to all the behaviors that Peter is about to talk about over the rest of 1 Peter. I think that at least this option is correct. He introduces the subject here, and then he explains it at length. So stay tuned. We're going to to see a lot more about honorable conduct. Just peek ahead with me to verse 15, for example. Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the empire. That's honorable behavior, right? Living, honoring, loving, God-fearing lives. It's living uprightly, respectfully, lawfully, commendably, compassionately. To be honorable is to be deserving of honor. And so in some way it sets us apart in a good sense. And as Edmund Clowney puts it, when Peter tells his hearers to live good lives, he uses a word that can also mean beautiful or attractive. The high holiness of fellowship with God must also produce observable conduct, admirable in its consistency and integrity. And Peter tells us that we should live in these ways because other people may actually turn on us. Don't know if you saw that. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So he specifically focuses on when believers are spoken against, slanderously accused. When unbelievers look at us and accuse us of being evildoers, which has happened time and time again in history, by the way. Roman historians wrote that 
Christians were loathed because of their abominations. And that they were people animated by a novel and mischievous superstition. When people didn't understand in the early church what Christians did in the Lord's Supper, they were even widely accused of cannibalism. Eating flesh, drinking blood. What else could it be? Or, jump ahead a number of centuries to the Protestant Reformation. How many people that were trying to reclaim the gospel were called devils and heretics? Excommunicated, even executed. Or jump ahead to today. How many times are Christians now labeled as old-fashioned, archaic, backwards, barbaric, hateful, bigots, and worse? In places of higher persecution in our world, Christians are often accused of blasphemy, of treason, and they face the consequences of those. Whenever we don't ascribe to the beliefs and morals of the broader society, we are maligned by them. They see us as evil. Really, according to the prevailing morals, the prevailing winds of culture, we can be seen as immoral, evil in the eyes of our society. And Peter tells us exactly how to respond when we are accused of such evils. If you're living for the Lord, don't change anything about the way you live. Stay honorable. Take the high roads. Stay steady and be patient. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So don't let people speaking against you dissuade you from living a holy and godly life. You may think, well, I've never had anyone speak against me or my faith. And if that's true, I'd first wonder whether you've lived a visibly Christian life or if you've hidden it. But I'd also say, In our society, if you hold to Christ, this opposition is coming. So if you haven't felt it yet, you almost certainly will. So now, you know how to respond when it does happen. Keep your conduct honorable. But why should we respond in this way? I mean, think about the other ways we could respond. Our two most natural instincts would probably be to either fight or take flight, right? Fight or flight. On the one hand, to to fight back against the opposition, to, to fight fire with fire, to lash back at those who are insulting us, to to fiercely defend ourselves. On the other hand, we we tend to shrink back from the opposition and start hiding away to completely pull away or to pull out of society altogether. But Peter's instruction is neither fight nor flight. It's just to remain faithful. It's faithfulness. To keep living an honorable life. To keep doing good deeds for the glory of God. 
And that's the why. The glory of God. The final thing I want to point out here is that as God's people, living away from home means remaining honorable among people who may oppose us so that God may be praised through them as well. So that God may be praised through them as well. We must remain honorable so that God may be praised through those who oppose us. As well, Remember, this is our primary purpose on earth as God's people, to proclaim his excellencies. Likewise, this is our purpose for living good lives among unbelievers, to extend the glory of God to and through more and more people. Verse 12 again, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God. On the day of visitation. You may recall Jesus saying something similar in Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Tom Schreiner sums up Peter's point this way. The Christians must live exemplary, exemplary lives with the kinds of good deeds that will make unbelievers take notice Hence, they will fend off any suggestion that they are practicing evil. Even more important, the goal is to provoke unbelievers to glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter enjoined believers to pursue virtue and goodness so that their goodness would be apparent to all in society. And so that would glorify God. We have to do this because here's the thing. People are watching. People are watching. As Karen Jobes comments, one trait of human nature seems to be that people watch strangers more closely. Right? When we see someone who seems out of place in their surroundings, it just draws our attention, right? When one time I saw a guy strutting across a major road here in Ottawa carrying a sword. It was so strange. <laughs> I just had to stop and, and stare, right? But as Christians, we are, by nature, out of place in our society. And so people are watching to see how we respond. How we respond to being called freaks or bigots. Now, Witness to a friend, get accused of evil proselytizing. How will you respond? Stand up for the unborn. Get called anti-women. How will we respond? Stand up for, or stand up against assisted death and get called uncompassionate. How will we respond? Get lambasted for holding to God's definition of gender or marriage. They're watching. Will we lose our cool? Will we retaliate? Will we demonize the other side? 
Or will our steady, consistent, loving way of life speak louder than their words? Will we continue to share the truth and love because we care about their souls? Will we continue to, to stand up for what is right despite the slanderous caricatures of who we are? Will we silence our critics by simply continuing to show love who those, to those who most need it? Our honorable life can quiet the stereotypes. Our actions can refute the prejudices. Uh, unbelievers generally can recognize a good moral life when they see it. And, even if they don't see it here and now, they can and they will in the future. See, Peter's not necessarily trying to rescue Christians' reputations in the present. But he's convinced that we will be vindicated on the day that Christ returns. Once more, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the day of visitation. If we didn't believe that Jesus is coming back one day, I don't know how we would ever hold on in the face of hostility we might face. This is our hope. Christ crucified, risen, and returning. And at his returning, his visitation, our good deeds will lead to God being glorified. Now, some believe that this visitation that Peter talks about actually refers to any time when someone gets saved. In other words, that, that glorious moment when, when God visits us and his spirit indwells us. So in other words, this verse would go something like, stay honorable so that people are won over, so that they'll see your good life and they'll give their lives to God, glorifying him. Now that's actually a very possible interpretation. I tend to agree with Clowney here, though, that in the view of the emphasis that Peter puts on the coming of judgment in the day of the Lord, it seems more likely that Peter is describing the day when every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Ultimately, though, it doesn't really matter because both of those things are going to happen. Right? Some people will be won over by our lifestyles, and God is glorified then. Others will resist until the end, but every knee will bow, and God will be glorified then. The bottom line is that God will be glorified through you, with or without you. But our hope, our prayer, is that many, even many now who are considered enemies of God, like we all were, that many would gladly join in the glorifying of God, now and for all eternity. That's our hope. So our, our motives in abstaining from the passions of the flesh and living honorable lives must never be to maintain our own reputation or honor. 
every one of our efforts should tie into our main goal, which we saw back in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and that God would be glorified on the day of visitation. You know, here that it's our good deeds that get seen, but it's God's glory that gets praised. And I think, well, how can we ensure that our good deeds glorify God and not ourselves? Well, you can't guarantee it, but you can certainly do your best to point to him. Right? Whenever you get noticed or praised or honored or thanked, and you will at times, use your words to deflect the praise to God. To give credit where credit is due. If we're consistently doing that, that, that's one way in which we proclaim his excellencies, and people won't get confused as to who deserves the glory then. Now, as we go, we have to be really mindful of the way we look at the world around us. Because it can be very easy to talk about the hostility that the world will throw our way and to adopt a very much an us-versus-them mindset. And to see our opponents as straight enemies. But even if they do act as enemies at times, Jesus already told us how to treat our enemies, right? I was struck by the, the lyrics of a song I was listening to this week. It went this way. We have heard the call to battle and to war but do we even know what we're fighting for? You have given all the armor that we need, orders of the heart to love our enemies. And then the chorus goes, the world is not the enemy. The war is not the one we see. The world is not the enemy. It's the prize. Now that, of course, echoes Ephesians 6, right? For our, we struggle not against flesh and blood, or other people. That's not the war we see. There's a much bigger war being waged, and precious souls hang in the balance. Souls that that fight against God are really deceived and blinded, and they are still souls for which Christ bled and died. The world is not the enemy. It's the prize. And as the song we're going to sing in a moment says, Christ will have the prize for which he died. Christ will have it. So may we glorify him accordingly now as we will then. And let's make sure we're fighting the right fights until he calls us home. Pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our hearts once again, mold them to be like your Son. May we see other people around us for who they are in your eyes, and may we love them. May our good deeds show off your glory and your honor and your fame. We look forward to the day that you bring us home, God. So may it help us to wait. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us endurance. 
We pray in Jesus' name.